0: Hi, this is Gary Meese, back again with The Case Against. I'm going to get back into my book, The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. Uh, I had an intervening episode about occult crime, uh, and I'm going to get back to that probably in my next episode, try to vary this up a little bit. And I, you know, I do intend to do some some commentary about some other true crime, but you know, honestly, that's not my top preoccupation at this point. I've, I've got other interests that I'm pursuing, and uh, I'm, I'm do I am keeping my toe in the water on the West Memphis Three case, and uh, you know, and I, I do have an abiding interest in certain aspects of true crime but mostly how it's reported uh, I'll say there's a long history of misinformation in uh, the wrongful conviction community and I would describe that community very 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 loosely organized but uh, all of a piece somehow goes all the way back to at least the Haymarket Square riots where a number of, uh, there was a bombing in Chicago. A number of policemen were killed, and, uh, and some anarchists were arrested and hung. Justice was a little swifter and surer back then. And uh, they be- since then, the anarchists have become the Haymarket Martyrs. There's a statue commemorating their great so-called sacrifice in Chicago. Uh, And it was latched onto by uh, a bunch of really radical groups, in some sense it's more radical and dangerous than the the groups today uh, since their solution. For for about 40 years, uh, dynamite was seen as the solution to the problems of society. By certain groups of anarchists uh, another group uh, uh, run by Luigi Galliani out of Italy not really affiliated with the Haymarket Square people but uh, as I say sort of all of a piece uh, the Haymarket Square anarchist had German affiliations for the most part. Uh, so it's a slightly different school of anarchy, but I'm bringing that Galliani up because Sacco and Vanzetti were close associates with Galliani, And he, uh, uh, and they are portrayed as, you know, innocent victims of wrongful, wrongful conviction. It's pretty clear at this point that Sacco, at least, was involved in the robbery that resulted in his execution. Um, Benzetti, it's less clear, but, you know, despite his persona as being, you know, uh, an eloquent and even sweet-tempered man, he also... <laughs> was committed to the idea of using dynamite to create a, a more perfect society. And then we have other uh, other sort of loosely affiliated wrongful conviction cases such as Leo Frank who you know I've read the I've read a lot about the case uh, and I understand why he was convicted at the time. It looks; it does appear that, you know, he was convicted of killing little Mary Fagan, one of his uh, workers at his pencil factory, uh, on a Saturday, a Confederate Memorial Day of all times. (laughs) Sometimes these killings all seem to occur at these holidays. But anyway, uh, it, it it does appear that Jim Conley, who was a kind of custodian, he really just sort of hung around the place, and a notorious drunk uh, and layabout. Uh, probably actually committed that crime, but there is some evidence against Leo Frank that just can't be that lightly dismissed. And there were there was a wealth of evidence presented against him at trial that made him look very guilty. He was certainly not the as innocent as he's been portrayed by his supporters over the years uh I'll say that but the fact that he was his sentence was commuted from death to a life sentence uh, people in Georgia this this killing occurred in Atlanta just so you know broke, Amazon Music creates a new playlist just for you too. broke out broke out of Broke uh, Leo Frank out of prison in an amazingly well planned and executed uh, break in the prison system and took him out uh, to Marietta, Georgia, where Mary Fagan was from, and they hung him from a tree. Uh, and they did it in a s- as respectfully as, I respectfully as. You can hang somebody, they did this, they did it, it really is a matter of honor for protecting Mary Fagan. Of course it was, I'm not gonna really defend lynching, but uh, it's, it's sort of, I mean, they were convinced that this man had killed this little girl and he deserved death. I sort of understand that, and it was not that unusual at the time. Or, uh, vigilante type groups to take justice into their own hands the idea of a legal system actually taking care of crime problems is a relatively recent phenomena and prior to that communities generally just took care of bad actors and so there was still a holdover from that uh, again I'm not going to defend lynching I think that Uh, cases should be tried through the justice system. But, uh, you know, I do understand why Leo Frank was dealt with the way he was by this crowd of people who felt that moneyed interest had come in and uh, overly influenced the decision of the governor to commute his sentence. Uh, And that was a case where Leo Frank was Jewish, Initially, that had very little to do with the case. Uh, There was probably more prejudice against the fact that he was a Yankee industrialist than the fact that he was Jewish uh, when a lot of moneyed Jewish interest got involved in it. Then that, in his defense, uh, the... Semitic angle came into it, and the anti-Semitic angle came into it. Uh, but uh, the defense is really is the one who sort of brought this upon themselves, and the Jewish community in Atlanta really didn't embrace Leo Frank particularly closely uh, at first. It was mostly money and interest from the North, which, again, was resented by the Southerners who felt that they were being exploited, which they were. Um, We have other cases. uh, I can think of particular, and as a result of, as a result of that case, we have the uh, Anti-Defamation League and, uh, and which is still around and and it's very, it's changed a little bit over the years, but that's basically where that came from and in um, the revival of the, the second fast forward a, a number of years and I would let me say that Sacco and Vinzetti had huge international outcry. It was really comparable in a lot of ways to the uh, uh, George Floyd. Uh, demonstrations that we had last summer uh, to back up a little bit to Sacco and Vanzetti jumping forward a couple of decades we get to the Rosenbergs who again they're accused of spying for the Soviet Union they were both executed Ethel Rosenberg probably really wasn't I almost certainly wasn't really heavily involved in this spying effort but her husband certainly was. Julia certainly was. Uh, and, you know, a family member basically blew the whistle on them or, or provided most of the evidence for the uh, conviction. Again, the Jewish community really didn't want to be seen as, you know, a part of this group of. Uh, Soviet sympathizers, even though there, there was a lot of far left and communistic uh, sympathy within that community, many of whom were from Russia and are, had roots in Russia, or the Baltic states, or Poland, uh, that, that, you know, Eastern Europe, and they, they felt sympathy with the Soviet efforts at that time. Uh, but later, later, uh, later, various Jewish elements embraced the Rosenbergs as an example of anti-Semitism. And again, it wasn't really about anti-Semitism or or that, you know, that was not the problem there. The problem was, was they were spying for Russia. They were spying for the Soviet Union, uh. There was a lot of doubt cast on this for many years, uh, but the Venona papers that were uncovered in the 1990s revealed that Julius certainly was involved. You, and you can you can debate about how uh, vital that information was, but I'm not really gonna, I'm not an expert on nuclear arms so I'm not I'm not even going to try to get into whether the information he provided was important or not some people say it was and some people say it wasn't so let's just leave it there Uh, you know we have the case of say Reuben Carter Again, again embraced a very early case that was embraced by a bunch of celebrities left-wing groups, prominent lawyers from Philadelphia and New York, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, really a lot of the same sort of actors uh, that you would see in uh, a lot of these cases, but this is kind of early. And it's very clear that Reuben Carter is extremely guilty there's a huge amount of evidence against him including ammunition uh, he's driving around at night after killing for going into a bar with uh, what's his name and shooting up uh, you know this little bar for Lafayette Bar for no particularly good reason killing three people outright and. Uh, uh, severely wounding another one uh, it was race based people don't like to admit that but it, they, these were white victims here's a, here's a black culprit he's driving around at night you know 2, 2 to 3 a.m. in the morning in Patterson New Jersey and uh, his car is he's described as being at the scene by several witnesses the car is described as being at the scene by a witness and, you know, it was, it was, his story was popularized in a song by, most famously, a song by Bob Dylan and also the Denzel, very, I like the movie uh, Hurricane with Denzel Washington because I generally like almost everything Denzel Washington's in. He's an excellent actor who really elevates the material, however... The story that it's told in Hurricane is highly, highly misleading by almost everybody's standard, including the whole idea of Reuben Carter being a, a contender for the championship at the time, et cetera, et cetera. He was not. He was, on, he was an alcoholic who was on a downhill slide. He was, if you read his books, he's an obvious sociopath who hated white people. I don't know how anybody could read those books and come away thinking, come away with any other conclusion, but lots of people do. I guess they find him inspiring somehow. And so Hollywood embraced him, the entertainment industry embraced him. And I will say that to a lesser extent, they embraced uh, the Rosenbergs, who have had a number of documentaries made over the years about that case, um, That they've had to excuse me uh, I'll get little notices in occasionally the it's uh, been a number of documentaries made about that case uh, including by family members who aren't exactly objective about all this and you know it's very sad that two little boys were orphaned by the actions of their parents but that is that's the actual fact and ethel rosenberg all she had to do was just simply talk to authorities and she wouldn't have been executed but she chose execution instead of being there for her children so be it uh you know not you don't hear so much anymore about say carol chessman who was a famous cause celeb back in the 60s but you know obviously guilty leonard pelletier with the uh the American Indian Movement uh, and shoot killing uh, federal agents. You don't hear so much about him. He's still alive, last I checked, which is pretty recently, and obviously guilty. Again, embraced by a bunch of far left people who think he's innocent. Uh, And then we get into so we have this long history of people, and they're all somewhat, you know, really we're talking about a fairly small community of people going back 100-and-something years that are basically a legal community based in New York with outliers in Philadelphia and Chicago, uh, major urban cities in the north who have embraced this wrongful conviction movement, which has now grown to include uh, you know, innocence projects of, of varying quality in virtually every state. Uh, I've observed before, and I'll say again, that the Innocence Project had a, a worthy goal at first. Let's ch- check out all the available DNA and see who's in prison unjustly, uh, particularly in crimes where DNA would be crucial, particularly rape, but in some murder cases, you get DNA that you can use to. To find somebody else or get somebody else off the scene uh, rape cases most rape cases with one significant exception that I'm going to mention in a bit uh, uh, rape cases uh, you know pinpoint pinpoint uh, uh, one culprit culprit and often let off others and the one significant exception I'll mention is the central part five uh, there was never it was never disputed at the time of the trials. After all these boys confessed and you can see their confessions online, their parents are sitting there. They're not being coerced, they're not being threatened. Elizabeth was an, did a did this marathon session of interviews, did an outstanding job of handling these teenage boys, getting the information that was needed without using any untoward uh, tactics. I I don't know what the police said before and after. That's, you know, that's all disputed. But what you see on tape is is boys confessing and they don't seem to be particularly scared. Some of them just don't seem to care that much. Uh, So, and of course we have when they see us, which is a horrible bit of docudrama. The first 15 minutes is or so with the boys in the park, frolicking through the park, high-fiving people, and just having a lighthearted time is not what happened. They went in there, they were armed. Uh, there was a, particularly a piece of uh, lead pipe roughly 12 inches or so wrapped in tape that was used to beat people that was passed around various people and they described participating at some level in the rape of the central park jogger they were guilty of that and they for their crimes they got the reward of 40 million dollars because bill de blasio wanted to buy off boats in the black community and he and it didn't cost him, him personally it didn't cost him anything it was the city of New York that paid it off he got to look good it didn't really cost them anything and it you know according to his standard it made him look good again you know a from a quite a far left perspective uh, and it's amazing we just don't see that Not every case is obviously embraced by, has a political aspect to it. I don't think the West Memphis Three case has an obvious political aspect to it, but there is a political aspect to it. Uh, Berlinger and Samofsky, it's pretty obvious from their totality of their work, they really have contempt for people in the South, uh, for people who are not from their little urban area up in in new york and connecticut and so forth and uh they really have a different worldview they regard the death penalty as being um a horrible horrible thing that should never happen i'm not particularly for the death penalty just because of the way it's applied there's some people that they put there's a lot of people on death row they put them to death I don't care they did something so horrible that they really deserve to die but the problem the problem is it's not applied equally and people sit for decades uh, on death row who really should just they should just go ahead and execute them or just put them into general population one or the other but the fact is is it's applied so unequally and it's based you know based if you've got enough money you can often as people it's pretty obvious if you've got enough money and you can afford really good attorneys you can get off on a lesser charge or you can be exonerated completely with oj simpson being the most prominent example of that Just throw in celebrity into it and that's what you've got robert blake's the same way I don't think that was gonna be a death penalty case but uh, wouldn't have been almost any circumstance but it was pure out and murder but he certainly got away with it ding 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 Uh, sorry about that and the you have other cases the West Memphis three cases was obviously embraced by a lot of people who are really into the wrongful conviction camp. Uh, You have strange cases like Ryan Ferguson, uh, his, the other guy, Charles Erickson is still sitting in prison, who's convicted of the same crime that Ryan Ferguson has long since been out on. And what's the difference between Charles Erickson and Ryan Ferguson? Well, for one thing, Ferguson presents himself much better personally, at least in limited exposure, than Charles Erickson. He seems like a charming young man if you don't pay too close attention to him. He had a father who was highly devoted to his cause, who was willing to spend vast amounts of money and uh, tirelessly publicizing the case. So he's out and he's innocent, but nobody seems to worry about Charles Erickson who's sitting in prison. And frankly, Charles Erickson's story sounds like somebody who was in a black... Rem- vaguely... Rem- and, you know, I will say that Ryan Ferguson isn't obviously a uh, been a cause celeb for leftist groups, but then you could almost argue the West Memphis Three aren't. Central Park Five certainly are Stephen Avery is another one where it's not obvious that uh, this is some sort of politically motivated uh, cause. But in fact, you know, it really is. It's, uh, the cause is expanded to be just simply against authority. Let's, let's disprove, let's take away all the credibility of the police, the prosecutors, the courts, and the prison system. The whole justice system is corrupt. You can't trust it, you trust anything in it, even if the DNA convicts you, which it does in the Avery case. Uh, and the gold stan- the Innocence Project's gold standard sh- certainly should apply there. Apparently, it doesn't, since Avery is on the list of uh, the West uh, the Innocence Project's you know wrongful convictions. How does that happen? well, money's involved, political pressure's involved, public pressure's involved, and they burn their credibility pretty quickly when they do stuff like that. I will say, uh, getting back to the Innocence Project, the problem they're having is there were, uh, you could harvest a number of cases early on where there was questions about involvement in, say, a rape, you run the DNA, it turns out, oh, it was another rapist who actually did this. So, therefore, uh, this guy in prison who's been saying he's innocent all along, looks like he's innocent, we'll let him out. How many cases like that are, are out there? Not many, and but some. And it's worthy, worthy checking them out, worthy following them up. It's worthy... It's good to run the DNA and find out if if people are actually innocent. I'm all for that. But at a certain point, with DNA being routinely, uh, analysis being routinely applied in many, many cases, though many rape cases are mishandled and many rape kits are lost, uh, are set aside and not checked. Uh, I was in Memphis and they were having a huge problem with, hundreds of cases that had just been mishandled by the local investigators there. Police do make mistakes. They are many times they're lazy or incompetent or corrupt. They're not a perfect institution and people who are people who go into law enforcement have a certain kind of psychology that lends itself to certain kinds of corruption if they basically if they just go to the dark side because they're they have that kind of engagement with society they are interested in getting out being with people interacting with people presenting a certain amount there's a certain amount of hey i'm gonna have some power as a cop and when they start feeling powerless one way they May, they tend to exert it in another so that's, that's not good I don't have a real solution to that defunding the police is not the solution to the problem and there are many many good and honorable policemen out there I've met more than a few personally and had no reason to think of them as anything other than good guys and I've, seen, I've known some and seen some in action that are really despicable people some judges are really good, some judges aren't. Some DAs are really good and some aren't. And we now have a whole crop of w- w- DAs coming up in these coming into these large urban centers who are being funded by groups that are committed to the idea that there are many wrongful convictions going on and we need to empty the prison system. And let's let's elect DAs who will make that happen, let's get people who are soft on crime and particularly certain kinds of crime and certain kinds of people who are committing the crime and uh, people who are perceived as victims of the system. And we we will throw our considerable resources towards those DAs and basically we will subvert the justice system from the top or virtually the top DA has a lot of power within their jurisdictions very obviously it's a very powerful position and I'm sure I'm leaving some there's many cases I'm leaving out uh, but You know, I I was doing a lot of research and, you know, those some of the bigger cases that I was looking at. Um, You know, there are many others that are smaller. I'm not going to get into those because I'm just sort of giving a bigger picture. But to understand that this thing about wrongful conviction has been going on for a long time. A lot of very smart, very well-connected people with a great deal of money who are committed to the idea that the justice system is inherently unfair. And the West Memphis Three has benefited from those people to a certain extent. Okay, that's enough of me on my soapbox for this time, getting into stuff I really didn't think I was gonna get into uh, today, because I thought I was just gonna read chapter 11 from my book, The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers, but I feel compelled to do that I also feel, compelled. briefly, I'm gonna talk about an interview I listened to uh, with uh, Terry Hobbs, just become aware of, I listened to, and uh, it was interesting, he said, among other things, I won't get into most of most of the stuff he said, he said before, uh, Terry handles these interviews fairly well, and Terry is the stepfather of Stevie Branch, one of the victims in the West Memphis Three. He's also a crime victim himself. He is the victim of these murders. He wasn't the person who was killed, but it was his child that was killed. It was his stepson, but it was his child. Uh, Among the bigger things he mentioned, there were two things that really stood out. One was that he thinks the records of interviews uh, and talks that he had with police during the investigation were somehow mishandled or lost. He's, and he's not really blaming the police for that. He didn't, didn't get into that. He's just saying that, you know, they're not there. He doesn't know where they are. Uh, it makes sense to me. I, it's obvious that they ta- it's obvious the police t- talked. There's some interview there's two couple of brief interviews and a fairly extensive interview with Mark Byers that can be found at Callahan. Uh, it's obvious they were talking to the parents, but their records aren't really available at Callahan. Presumably there's are someplace, but who knows where they are. In some cases, maybe they didn't keep particularly good written records. It was a very hectic time, and perhaps they should have. Frank, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again, they should have held, had extensive interviews with all the parents just to get as much information as they could about who could possibly have committed this crime because they got some interesting information out of Mark Byers just from his, you know, the interview that we can see. Help it get, helps with gain some perspective on not only Mark's activities, what he was doing, and so forth, but the uh, the case in general and Stevie's affiliations, etc. The other thing that was I'm kind of surprised he talked about this, and I knew about it at the time because I. I don't mind saying this now since he's mentioned this, but he mentioned to me at the time, I knew this was going on, he mentions that Mark Byers, and this was right around the 25th anniversary of the killing, and right around the time that Bob Ruff had his podcast going on about the West Memphis Three, Mark Byers was making threats to kill Terry Hobbs. And he made these threats through Amy Berg, who was the director of the West of Memphis Project. Uh, she was alarmed enough by this to notify the authorities, and they told Hobbs about this. And he took proper precautions. The uh, police, I don't know how closely they surveilled buyers. Obviously, I don't have any information about their investigation beyond that. Well, maybe it's not so obvious, but I don't they didn't make any of it public and they're not likely to but the fact is is you know there was this going on uh, at some point in the West Memphis three case and the last we heard from Mark Byers publicly about this in any kind of organized coherent way was he was adhering to the idea that Terry Hobbs, David Jacoby, LG Hollingsworth, and buddy Lucas had gone out into the woods and were involved in some sort of drug sex orgy out there the boys came up and so Terry they you know maybe they were disciplining but eventually Terry Terry ended up overseeing the killing of the three boys to cover up <laughs> this drug sex orgy the whole thing's ridiculous that None of those guys have perfect alibis for that time. G. Hollingsworth certainly doesn't. (coughs) But um, there's no evidence that they were together at any point except on the word of two convicted rapists in the Arkansas prison system. People, these guys are career criminals. They're sociopaths. One of them's been since transferred to Texas, Uh, last time I checked, he was still in prison the other one's still in prison in Arkansas and they should have zero credibility. One of them is now I'm going to, now that I've wandered all over the place, I'm going to get back into, uh, chapter, uh, get back into the book, chapter 11. In Mauro Leverett's book, Life After... No, that's not Moral Leverett's book. In his own book, In Life After Death, Damien Eccles claimed the only act of violence he ever committed was a fight at school. Now, let's be clear. Damien Eccles is one of the three convic- men convicted in the killings of Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers on May 5, 1993 in West Memphis, Arkansas. The other two are Jesse Miskelly Jr. and Jason Baldwin just in case you're not absolutely unfamiliar with this case, which seems unlikely, but certainly possible. The attack at the school was serious enough that months later, in February 1993, when his victim, Shane Dibblebiss, went missing, foul play was suspected because of Echo's threats. But eventually, Dibblebiss turned up unharmed. Devil Biss, eighteen, later told police about this incident. All right, I was going to school and met Deanna Holcomb. Deanna Holcomb being Damien Eccles' prior girlfriend, the one that he was—the breakup was devastating to him—and they, she, and Damien Eccles were both practicing black magic, according to Deanna Holcomb. Uh. All right, I was going to school with me at Deanna Holcomb and in turn Damian Eccles. Emotional things began to develop between me and Deanna Holcomb. She broke up with Damian and soon went out with me, which led Damian to believe I had stolen Deanna from him. He threatened to kill Deanna. He jumped up on me from behind, dragging me to the ground and calling at my face with his fingernails. He, uh, people were saying he was trying to rip my eyes out. When I got up, I turned around and I was going to fight, but he was being held down by several of the people that were in the hallway witnessing it, so I didn't have to. That's Double business statement about the non-violent, peace-loving Damien Eccles. Now, uh, Damien Eccles routinely filed his fingernails into one-and-a-half-inch-long points. Basically, he had vampire fingernails that made pretty effective weapons and the kind of unfair behind-the-back uh, tear-your-eyes-out attack that he attempted on Dibblebiss. Eccles was suspended for the fight. Uh, Dibblebiss was allowed back in class Says Dibblebiss, one of the threats was against my uncle, who was a 16-year-old fellow student, Uh, according to Dibblebiss. Uh, Eccles, quote, threatened him by by saying if he jumped in, he cut him to pieces and bury him in Deanna's front yard. Most of the threats were generally just short, you know, like, I'm going to kill you, or, you know, like, when he had me down on the ground, he said, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to rip your eyes out. He was a very imposing person. When he was around friends, he could silence them with just a glance. I mean, he could look at them and they would be quiet. It seemed to me that all his friends feared him, including Deanna Holcomb. The way it seemed to me that she was around him because she was afraid that if she left, he would kill her. She did tell me that he scared her, that she thought he was crazy. She didn't tell me anything about sacrifices or anything, but she did tell me that at one time they had sexual intercourse in a room full of people watching them. That is the main thing she told me about like a circle of people were watching them and that is with candles around and everything like that. Now, sexual intercourse between ceremonial leaders is a long-standing practice in Wicca dating to cult founder Gerald Gardner's proclivities for fat flagellation, nudity, and exhibitionism. Uh, You know, I contacted Deanna via social media, and I sent letters to her home in Arkansas, and she declined to clarify... Any, any information. I got no response whatsoever. She's basically been out of the media on this since 1993. I don't blame her, and I wasn't really expecting a response, but I felt like I needed to ask, and uh, I would like her to clear up some things, uh, particularly if there's a misunderstanding here. Uh, she has the opportunity to do that, but she chose not to do that. Uh, Dibblebiss said Eccles knows, quote, a lot of th- about a lot of things. He knows how to work with a person's mind. He can manipulate a person's mind to what he believes in. Uh, Dibblebiss described Baldwin and Holcomb as, quote, susceptible to another person's mind, unquote. Dibblebiss said, Vienna quote, said that he proclaimed himself to be the son of Satan occasionally, that he did some strange things that led her to believe he was demonic. Uh, If he were in black magic, there would be bisexual tendencies because in all magic, there are some ceremonies which include bisexual sex magic. (laughs) And, and, you know, it just struck me. And then you have... Journalist like Marle Everett, who just, just just totally dismisses the idea that occultism is somehow involved in this case at all, which it obviously is, uh, and it was common currency around that high school, around not just that high school but over in West Memphis as well. Not among everybody, but among a certain group of kids that there was a lot of occultic ideas floating around and they seem to have been practicing some of this or at least they said they were they were describing these practices where they actually carried them out or not it's less clear It may have just been a lot of talk did Damien and Deanna have a ritualistic uh, intercourse before a group of people in some sort of magical ceremony. I don't know for a fact, but Divilbiss said she did. I have no particular reason to doubt him. But, you know, he may have just been trying to make them both look bad. Who knows? Who knows except I'm going to take it at face value that he's describing what she told him and she is saying what happened. And... I haven't seen any evidence that Deanna is somebody who is say, telling anything but the truth. Uh, unlike a lot of people, and you know, there's cert- some people in this case that have a certain amount of credibility because they don't, they're not obviously telling lies, and she's one of them. And Dibblebiss is one of them. I don't see him telling lies. Not saying they couldn't be there, but I don't see him telling lies. Divilbus said Deanna gave, Eccles gave Deanna a golden coin and a crow's foot when they broke up. Quote, the crow's foot was generally used in black magic, was supposed to be a hex. The crow's foot was supposed to represent pain. He did things that represent black magic. And the crow's foot was often used in death spells in witchcraft. Just a fact. And I've talked long enough today. Not so much about the West Memphis Three case, but that's fine too. And uh, I got enough in there, I think, to, to we're, we're going to move on with that. I, I probably will do go back to the occult uh, crime book for my next episode. Uh, I'm looking into uh, some information about another very well-known case that has some interesting aspects to it. Uh, ha- there's you know certain theories floating around Zodiac, and there's certain theories floating around about that. I'm not going to try.